Brothers and sisters, friends and comrades, readers and listeners, this is the PRC Show, and I'm your host, Paul Cooley. Thank you for listening. And this is actually episode 010, Reading Parting the Waters, where we discuss the Taylor Branch book, Parting the Waters, American the King Years, 1954 to 1963. And I'm here with my friend Gabe. And the first question I have for you, Gabe, is I'm getting a little anxious with the numbers because it was originally 001 and we had 009. There's not a lot of space now. It's zero one zero. Should we add another zero in front of the show because we might have to do so many? You're looking at me so perplexed. I mean, like it's a... true. There are multiple volumes to come, Paul. <laughs> so we have to we have to be numerically equipped. You know, in the, in, in this day and age, you can't be. Uh, uh, too forearmed for the eventuality. I like to have a lot of space. And if the fact that we're zero one zero, we're limiting ourselves. But we'll keep it at that. We have a very exciting chapter we're going to go over. We were talking about the Freedom Rides last uh, episode in 009, which was chapter 11. This is chapter 12, the Summer of Freedom Rides. And what is great about this chapter to me is this whole, this entire chapter could be a two or three hour movie or a miniseries. One of my favorites of the whole book. There's a lot of back and forth between MLK and RFK. Uh, there's discussions between the activists and RFK. There is a little bit of MLK me maybe being um, more humanized. Uh, first, it, uh, initial impressions of this or any anything you want to add to that before we get into it? Well, there's a lot going on, that's for certain. And obviously the incredible courage and zeal to the point of being hard to relate to in some cases yes. but there's also the politics both within the movement and a sort of three-cornered politics between the movement the kennedy administration and the southern politicians who are running states like alabama and mississippi so it's uh one of these chapters which brings out some of the things that i think taylor branch is really good at which is conveying uh the incredible power, um, sort of moral majesty of people, yes. and also the grimy, gritty internal discussions and political back and forth that plays out across this whole story. And and the internal conflicts, or you're starting to see some tension within the civil rights movement itself, um, which I don't think there has been much, and I think later in history we're going to find there's definitely more factions and differently more... Uh, avenues of that people participate in the civil rights movement, but that starts to come out a little bit, right? Uh, Absolutely, except for Robert Moses, who once again, or Bob Moses, who is basically just a saint and makes it impossible <laughs> for me to understand him at all. Yes, we will talk about Bob Moses because that was interesting. We'll, we'll talk about that. So there's a lot of back and forth between MLK. There's like a MLK RFK showdown. Maybe that's dramatic there. Uh, we're going to learn just little tidbits here. What political figure questions an activist when he says something like they don't even believe in the atom bomb um <laughs> there's um there's some showdown between state government and federal government there's challenges to martin luther king from students and maybe some disappointment as, as we mentioned uh the funniest line of the uh the gandhi line i'll read it when i get there again but i'm just gonna say it there's nothing wrong with teasing and, and repeating it the funniest line of this chapter which it's not incredibly funny do you think it's funny like last chapter was not funny at all it was hard for me to read it was too is, much is, violence is this the bevel quote about gandhi yes that, yes that, that was hilarious 
but uh, foreshadowed in some way by a Robert Kennedy quote about how dead Martin Luther King and his comrades would be if it wasn't for his actions. I looked that up too. So there's two things, and I will, well, I'm going to mention them right now here. So here's the funniest line of the book so far. <laughs> What's all this hang-up about clothes? Gandhi wrapped a rag around his balls and brought the whole British Empire to its knees. And we'll we'll get into that later. We'll put some meat on the bones of that one. Um, and then there's a quote about Kelsey's nuts. What the heck does that you'd, mean? You'd be dead as Kelsey's nuts. Yes. And I, I like how uh, <laughs> Taylor Bridge then writes, there's a pause where Dr. King may well have been trying to understand what that meant. <laughs> right. Right. Like, what is he talking about? Uh, did you research it? Did you I did research it. it. All right. Yeah. What, what does it mean? So Kelsey's nuts is... Oh, God, you guys are going to... This is such a great episode. You're learning so much about American history. So it goes back to when cars were made in, like, the Model T in the Ford assembly line and has something to do with the steering column that, like, it was a <clears throat> a type of bolt and uh, thing that would keep the thing together really tight. Okay. So it could also be used for somebody that's really uptight. You'd say, you're as tight as Kelsey's nuts. And so because it had that sexual innuendo of nuts... Um, like dead as a doornail was it's like similar to that um, doesn't totally make sense but that would and if you were in the 1930s maybe in New England you would be using that term you a would, lot right there's a little double entendre there yeah and so a young Bobby Kennedy hears this among the Pauls in Boston he probably heard it from it. his dad it's probably even outdate then really um, because it kind of got replaced by like dead as a doornail is what I read well dead as a doornail is even older or maybe Actually. okay, that's but it's similar to that, like right, a mechanical. Right. That's uh, that's Dickens. Oh, okay, yeah. So, um, and then the other little sort of funny tidbit is uh, possibly the worst police strike in American history. That it did not occur, but it could have been. <laughs> okay, so let's just refresh. We have the freedom rides that were going on. Last chapter was really probably two weeks of we talked about. So it was um, meaning. The Freedom Ride started like May, the early May 1961. Okay, remember 1961, that's where we're at. We're in May. This book starts on May 21st. The Freedom Ride started May 14th with that um, Aniston horrific, like where the bus gets bombed. By the way, just to clarify, now I'll talk about it in the other show. Um, so there was that bus bombing. Um, then Bull Connor did his famous let the Klan beat people for 15 minutes at the uh, Birmingham, Alabama trailways, and then where they think everything's done, and then Diane Nash sends in, there's actually a quote in a film where JFK, RFK goes, who the hell's Diane Nash? I don't know, but she's sending in another bus. Um, then there's the, the third, it kind of ends, chapter 11 ends on May 20th, when that bus gets to Birmingham and it's like a mayhem. Um, and that's when Siegenthaler, who is a one of Kennedy's aides, assistant uh, AD or whatever you call it, gets like beaten and he isn't, he's in the hospital. So enough, enough preface there. So Branch starts the chapter with RFK. What a sympathetic character he is. RFK getting back from a horseback riding to an FBI baseball game. Oh, but then he has to go, It's I guess it's a Sunday, I don't know. Then he has to go to an emergency meeting with justice officials, um, Attorney General, uh, what's not Attorney General, um, Assistant to the District Attorney, Attorney General, um, Byron White, and then um, if you remember, 
they promoted this guy, Burke Marshall, who was not really involved in the civil rights movement to become, or very political at all. He was the kind of head of the civil rights division and other officials. So RFK is in this meeting. He's upset about Siegenthaler, his guy, almost being killed. He calls Siegenthaler in the hospital. How's he doing? He's like, well, my head hurts. It was pretty awful. Um, He's upset with Governor Patterson because Patterson... Uh, which we're going to talk a lot about today, failed to protect the Freedom Riders, or his guy. And I think if you remember from last chapter, Patterson was difficult to get a hold of. Um, You know, he said like he was fishing or something like that. Maybe that's in this book. I forget. Um, But either way, he, or in this chapter, he, he's, they don't have the warmest uh, relationship. So all this, all these, this traumatic events have happened. And now it's, time to kind of rally the civil rights troops. So MLK flies into Montgomery, Shuttlesworth comes into Montgomery. Um, There's going to be this big meeting kind of, I don't want to say rally, but a big kind of let's coalesce, get our troops together um, at the first, we're in Montgomery, the first Baptist church. This is Abernathy's church. Um, Kennedy's on the phone. You know, there's still freedom rides that are theoretically going to be happening. And Kennedy's trying to figure out what to do about all this. Uh, he asked Siegenthaler to to call, like, MLK and try to get him to, like, hey, let's let's calm things down and not do this. And that, that just never ends up happening. James Farmer, the head of Corps, who, if I remember correctly, he's like, dad died recently. He didn't go down to the freedom rides. He comes in. Um, his plan is to come to this to this event as well. Um, and then, like, as a little aside, they Branch writes that John Doerr, remember who John Doerr is? Gabe, do you remember? I do. Just I do. He's tell the, the audience. <laughs> I, I, he's a Justice Department lawyer who's got strategies in mind for um, voting rights. Yes. So he's the guy that, um, I think he's from the Midwest. Republican. Kind of Republican from the Midwest that probably wasn't super excited about civil rights, but once he gets involved in this, he's like just trying to do the right thing. So he's actually down there and he, I like how Branch writes, he like puts across the water to this judge's, like in a boat to judge Frank Johnson's lakeside cottage for a signature for a temporary restraining order against Alabama clan groups, which was kind of a bold, uh, bold move for the judge to take because that could be, he gets some violence after him and he's like, you know what? I'll accept the uh, U.S., U.S. federal protection, so yeah, you can keep the guard. So anyways, King arrives into Montgomery. He goes to Abernathy's house. Um, Patterson told Byron Wright that... Uh, let's just pause. Yeah, let's pause. Let's just, just, I wanna... just for a second to reflect on what it means that a judge has to accept federal protection in his own state. That's, the, that's a moment when democracy, the rule of law, the sort of norms of, of uh, uh, liberal society are profoundly under strain. No doubt. Right? That's uh, just one of those indicators that when the judges have to hide behind men with guns, then uh, things, are, things are on the edge. And when he threw that little two-sentence line in there, it made me think about as critical as we are as the Kennedy administration that would a different administration handle this? Like, how would they handle it? Would they have done that? Would they have tried to use some levels of government power to help try to protect, you know? So Patterson tells Byron White, who's 
talking to him. He's, you know, RFK's right-hand man that, you know, the Freedom Riders are communists. This, this is silliness. Like, we, he's just being all bravado and bluster. Patterson takes White to task, saying that, you know, are these federal marshals that are going to come here, are they going to help us go after these Freedom Riders, who, Freedom Riders who are, like, traitors and communists? White is like, you're, this is a joke. Obviously not. But... <laughs> Actually, that's not the way Branch writes it. He he he's actually a little rattled, I think, and he bypasses RFK and he's freaked out because Pattern Patterson's talk is so brazen, and he calls the president. Um, and so we go to this brick a day church, First Baptist Church. People start showing up at five five o'clock. Meeting is scheduled about the recent event recent events. There's folk singer. People are singing. They're praying. They're really joy joyful. Um, this is like three hours before the meeting. And a white mob grows outside across the street. They're yelling profanities, growing larger and more bolder. By nightfall, 1,500 people jam this church. Um, Reverend SSC tells stories about the Freedom Riders' courage, how they appeared one by one at his home the previous night. He introduces Diane Nash. You know, the crowd gets excited. He, he points out some of the Freedom Riders in the crowd, like John Lewis and whatnot. People cheer. King is in Abernathy's downstairs, like, office. And the way Branch writes this, he's a little freaked out, maybe, a little more anxious than usual, which makes sense, because outside there's, like, an angry mob. Um, it's getting bad. There's broken windows. There's N-word chants. King, and then King's starting to feel, it sounds to me, naively superhuman, <laughs> And he's like, we got to go out. I want to go outside. I want to get a look at this. And Bernard Lee, he's the Alabama state guy that becomes like his assistant. And Wyatt Walker, like, dude, no, 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 no. We're not going outside. This is not safe. But King's insistent. He thinks that, um, well, Branch is, I guess, inferring that, you know, if he goes outside, maybe he can shame the mob with his presence and you know, which he actually kind of has done before when there was the bombing at his house and there was like people kind of standing outside, but not to the same level. Um, I think this is a a different kind of fear. I'm no expert. Yeah. Personally, I hasten to add, but there's obviously the fear of the state, of the police. Uh, there, There's the fear of the terrorist in the night, the bomber. But I think that an angry mob probably conjures up images of lynching, right? I think an angry mob feels out of control in a way that the behavior of the police or even uh, a, a, a clan bomber does not. And also you can anticipate it because it's growing and growling and mm -hmm. yelling epithets at you. Um, and I think this is something that King has to grapple with in the moment. That's probably why he wants to make a judgment about it uh i don't see think it he, for himself i think so I, okay I, I i sort of came away with the feeling we have to understand what's happening here that's what he wanted to do probably so he goes outside and they scream at him they scream the n-word at him they throw like a metal cylinder at him that like kind of gets close to him um some of the marshals out there are holding perimeter but it's really touch and go byron Wright white who again was the second in command to kennedy rfk he is speaking to people at Fort Benning, Georgia, which is about an hour and a half away. This is like where the army commanders are. And 
they're refusing to use army trucks to be used. So he uses the local postmaster, the the mail, the the post office, uses some mail trucks to bring troops in. Now it's going to take some time. And there's no city police there. Patterson only has a few like state officers there. And this is where there's like a fine line between, you know, fine line between like refusing to protect the freedom riders and then asking for help because Patterson doesn't want to be seen as he quote his like line was, I'm not going to be nursemaids to these agitators. So this is one of these places where Patterson as a Southern white supremacist who's also in office uh, has a sort of exquisite tension because on the one hand, he doesn't want to be seen to be helping the um, freedom riders, of course, or to be soft on them, Mm -hmm. nor does he want to create a context in which the federal government can take away his power or make him look weak by taking over authority for um, security in the streets, right? Basically sort of usurping the monopoly on Mm -hmm. violence away from him and the state. Um, he doesn't want to be seen to be collaborating with the federal government because he doesn't want to. Right. He doesn't want to be uh, with the Yankees against states' rights. It is a, 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 you, you could see how by the end of or by the middle of the chapter he ends up in the position that he's in, and then finally he he is in some way responsible for peace in the streets. Right? If right. people are flipping cars over and burning, if the them, city burns down. It, it doesn't reflect. He can he can blame freedom riders all he wants, but it's still his city. It's still his state. Please don't be sympathetic to Patterson, Gabe. Uh, this is more. <laughs> this is more explaining than it is, uh, you know. No, you uh, did a good job explaining because he is like in a very tight area. Like backing he, him he, up. He's got to be. He's got to hold to his white supremacist support, and then he doesn't want the city to burn. So, and he doesn't want the federal government to be bailing him out and making him look, uh, whatever, um, neutered. So, uh, White gets a call from police commissioner. Sullivan, which I just love this, he suggests that, uh, hey, we might go on strike and then you're going to have to be responsible for the, you know, the traffic control, the fire alarms and everything. And this could lead, you know, branch rights. This could lead to federal government, like millions of dollars of liability. If like the police like walked off the job that just, you know, freaks out the, the, the Kennedy administration much more. So one of my favorite scenes, Shuttlesworth gets there with James Farmer, uh, I I get scared when I think about this, like an angry mob, um, just this could, you know, and we know all the violence has already occurred. Like this could just, people could get really injured. So they get there, white surround the car that Shuttlesworth and Farmer is in. They start rocking it side to side. Uh, I'm, and, and if I'm in this car, I'm like, I gotta, I'm out. <laughs> I'm leaving. This is too scary. So the driver throws it in reverse, peels back. So they go around to the back to try to get into the church, I guess a back way. And uh, Shuttlesworth is like, no, we're going in. Like, we, we're getting out. He's like, all right, Jim, follow me. And Branch writes, the wiry, diminutive Shuttlesworth bellowed, out of my way. Come, let's let's get him through. Out of the way. He wafted and startled white people out of his way with his wild arm emotions. Farmers, like, cringe behind him through the parting mass and just kind of, like, powers through. And they both get into the building under this, like, barrage of name-calling and screaming and, you know, could be... You could get a brick in your head, too, which some people do. So he gets to the basement, 
King presents Farmer as director of core. This is the first time Farmer's like around, I believe, all these like leaders. So Na um, Nash is there. John Lewis is there. Who are young? Lewis and Nash are kind of younger um, activists, but they've been doing this for a little bit. Uh, and Farmer's the newcomer and a little bit. I just had a reflection. Sorry to interrupt. I had a reflection about Shuttlesworth's sort of bravado and, and bravery and sort of physical gesticulation and parting the waters there. Uh, uh, I, <laughs> yeah. Do you remember uh, in, I think it's one of the James Lawson's trainings, he's teaching students, don't cower and cover up on the ground because that'll enrage the crowd yeah. and make them want to beat you more. So Shuttlesworth is doing this thing where he's waving his arms around and yelling and acting exactly the opposite right, of, right. of a cowering victim. He's sort of making himself... He's a small man physically, but he's making himself as big as possible. And people step back out of the way almost instinctively. And he, he, he doesn't allow himself to be dominated right. as a black man by a white crowd. And he literally parts the crowd. Well, he parted the crowd. And when I read that, I was like moved and my heart rate was going because I was like, this is badass. Like this guy, this is extremely courageous. It's, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's insanely courageous. It's, it's sort of not nonviolent, right? It's not like presenting yourself ready to be crucified. But it is behaving in this way that somehow understands how humans act and it allows him to do what he needs to do which is to go and join his people right it's kind of magnificent it's it's totally magnificent it's one of my favorite parts just he's just his like he like willed himself and farmer through there now will farmer is it sounds kind of like taken aback and freaked out a little bit he goes down to the meeting with king he again he buried his father 10 days ago he's kind of in shock uh, branch rights from this lunatic charge and outside, there's reports of a car that's overturned, which explodes into flames. RFK is keeping abreast of all this, and he wants marshals there, and he's pressing White to get more marshals. Inside the church, they're singing, Love lifted me, love lifted me, when nothing else could help, love lifted me. So they're just, you know, going through hymns, passing the time. The leaders are down in the basement. Molotov cocktails are thrown at the church. Rocks are thrown. Bricks are going through windows. Um, White says to RFK, this is very touch and go. Reverend C says, like, you know, calm down. Like, like just keep singing. So Wyatt Walker, the kind of unliked, I guess, but head of the SCLC, calls RFK and says, look, we need help. Um, and RFK says, you know, we're doing everything we can, but I want to talk to, you know, Dr. King. So RFK says to King, hey, look, more marshals are coming. And then Branch writes, seeking... <laughs> this is just so crazy. Oh, and just to pause for a second, if you remember in the book, uh, Wyatt Walker wants to be the one initially to talk to the Attorney General because as a good uh, Baptist minister, very conscious of protocol... He's thinking that actually the equivalent of Dr. King as the president of the SELC is actually the president of the United States. Yeah, right. So it should be me as the chief of staff speaking <laughs> right, to the attorney right. general. He did, he did remark on that. So Branch writes, seeking a point of identity with King, he recalled – this is um, Robert Kennedy. He recalled hearing stories from his grandfather, John Honey Fitzgerald, about how anti-Catholic mobs had burned nunneries in 19th century Boston. Oh, good Lord. Okay. And then as long as you were, and then he says, as long as you were in church, Reverend King, and our men are down there, you might as well say a prayer for us. King did not find any of this gallows humor funny nor laugh. Um, 
I just thought that was insane and crazy to think that as a violent mob is like, you know, on the precipice of maybe killing everybody in there or, or hurting people that RFK is going to make a joke about, yeah, you know, my, uh, my ancestors, not even experience that I had. I heard that they had it bad too. Um, but I guess he's trying to relate. So I guess we could give him credit. And what does King say in a taut voice? He says, if they don't get here immediately, we're going to have a bloody confrontation because they are at the door now. And then it seems like men in the mail trucks kind of arrive quickly after this, waving nightsticks and pushing single file through the mob. And so King actually, I think, says on the phone that they're there. Uh, Marshals fired like enormous volley of tear gas that sent the rioters uh, cursing and stumbling backwards in flight. The congregation shouted joy, dramatic rescue branch rights like a Hollywood movie. So it's like, oh my God, this is so great. They just came in the nick of time. But it's a hot night. Where's all this gas going to go? So the gas drifts back over um, over the church, and um, there's like this acrid sauna of air. Um, hold on one second. Who is that? We have a guest. Okay, that's fine. Um, so even the marshals like fell prey to the gas. So they're like, they don't even have all like gas masks and stuff like that. Brick shatters through the church still, hits an old man in the head. Brick hits a U.S. Marshal on the head, gashing his forehead. Gunshots are heard, like, in the neighborhood around this, like, into people's homes. Just impressionistically, it, the idea of federal marshals arriving in postal trucks, because they, they can't get army trucks, and they don't have, they have tear gas weapons. But, but not enough masks. But, but not masks. And they're having to retreat in the face of this growing angry mob. It's again, one of these moments where like the tissue separating barbarism and civilization looks pretty thin. Razor's edge. And it's just also, you know, we're in this day and age, we're sort of used to seeing images of the state controlling you know, disturbances in the street with military equipment and, and you know, obviously millions and millions of dollars of, of technology and armored vehicles and, and, and so forth. But it's this sort of particular moment where the federal government doesn't want to have a, a big footprint. Different pieces of the federal government, like the FBI and the Army, are very nervous about getting involved. Of course, they're working at cross purposes with the local state. And so it really is paper thin. This whole operation is just this line of men who are not very well prepared to deal with a mob that could become a kind of angry army. Yes. And eventually, this because it's so out of control, um, Governor Patterson finally proclaims martial law, and the Alabama National Guard comes in to save the day, whatever. But even when they come in, you know, uh, white teens are pelting their cars and throwing things at them. So at 10 o'clock, uh, I mean, the day's not over still. They've been in this church for five hours. King gives his speech at 10 p.m. He has like a theme of love, um, injustice, but he really scolds Governor Patterson in sort of an atypical King pattern where he uh, kind of goes off script. He blames Patterson for this, saying he created this atmosphere by his irresponsible actions of which violence could thrive. Patterson preached against the law. Um, and, you know, again, after seven hours, they face this like fire, stones, fists, tear gas. And they're drained of emotion. So it's over. I'm guessing it's close to midnight. Everyone goes home, goes to bed. <laughs> no. 
So <laughs> everyone's tired. It's like, all right, we had our fun. You know, all the white mobsters out there. Uh, which I talked to you off air about who this white mob is, and I want to know more. Are they Klansmen? Are they young Paul Cooley's and Gabe Kramer's who are misguided? No, never. But we don't really know um, who these people are, but there's a ton of them. I think in the documentary I saw, it was, you know, there's 1,500 people in the church. It was like, they estimate over 3,000 people standing outside this church. That's quite a lot. That, that It's like, that's not just, maybe there's some spectators, but it's not all clans, you know. So King and everyone else wants to go home, but when they try to get outside, there's bayonets pointed inward towards the church doors. They're also pointed at the, at the white mob. And King and everyone else is like enraged. They want to go home. They feel like prisoners. It was announced that the National Guard uh, Patterson guy, General Graham, he says, you guys are going to have to stay here until morning. He even comes in and tells them that. King tells RFK, and he's aggressive about it. And Kennedy pushes back saying, listen, you know just as well as I do that if it hadn't been for the U.S. Marshals, you'd be dead as Kelsey's nuts right by now. Okay. Okay. And King is like, what in a reference? Like, I don't even know what that means. Like, whatever. So he could tell, you know, RFK's upset or you know he he calms his mood down but he's still upset patterson is crying about this to rfk and kennedy says to him and and, go ahead. and, and by the way there's um this comes out more later in the chapter in a different context right where, where lawson is talking to the press about this but it creates a strange dilemma for students of nonviolence to be protected by armed yes. agents of the state right and i think that king is in this place where he's both like literally physically dependent on the our might of the federal government, such as it is, and also not wanting to concede this uh, either politically or sort of philosophically. And so Kennedy kind of bursts his bubble there. I, I, it's a moment of sort of sympathy with Kennedy. It's like, are you really lecturing me right now? Yeah. Like there, my men are risking their lives for you. I don't think King was opposed to them on a philosophical i think he just wanted to go home though right at that point but like that 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 is an issue with the with these like caravan bus rides that we'll get into so patterson's crying about this to rfk and kennedy says to him get graham to get these people home and patterson bickers back like look this is gonna make me look bad politically if i'm like treating them like nursemaids and Branch gives this nice quote from RFK saying, John, it's more important that these people in the church survive than for us to survive politically. Taking the high ground. Well, good for him. So a compromise is made. Which is, which is pretty restrained considering how just incandescent with rage you must be if you're <laughs> RFK in that moment at this guy who nominally is in the same political party as you, but has been doing everything possible to thwart you and put you in a difficult position and is representing something that you think is morally decrepit and backwards, which he does. It is quite – it is so fascinating that they are in the same party, but they are so opposite on this issue, really. Um, I mean, I think Robert Kennedy is pretty good at politics. That's kind of obvious, but he 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 does even under enormous stress, he doesn't tell this guy where to get off because he still needs Patterson to do something for right. him. Right. And is it your sense that in his heart of hearts, RFK is 
probably against seg- I mean he's against segreg- segregation and he wants like more racial equality and he almost sees this as like this is like we should be done with this because we have like bigger issues going on well, in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean and, and we'll talk more about this later, but um obviously he wants the country to make progress. He wants the country to be more enlightened and less discriminatory. Obviously he's an an Irish Catholic who's Northern who but, but specifically an Irish Catholic who sees his own family as having overcome discrimination and also he wants this conflict to go away so that his brother can get on with the business of uh, being a, a global leader. And although it's strange to say this in retrospect, at this moment in time, he's thinking of his brother running for re-election. Right. And he's got to manage that campaign. So he wants the Southern Democrats to stop fighting with them and let's all work together. So a compromise is made and um, first groups leave church around 4.30 in the morning. And I think there's a funny quote, which I didn't write down from, uh, is it either Shuttlesworth or Abernathy? It's like, John got me home okay, or something like that. Like, kind of like poking fun at Patterson. He carried me home. He carried me home. Right. Yeah, it was God, King, and whatever. Um, they can be very funny, yeah. these men. These, these pastors know a thing or two about the English language. Oh, for sure. So Patterson's popular with his base, but... I'm gonna. I called him like a metrosexual before. Newspaper dandy. I don't know because he had like all this weird stuff in his house. Grover Hall makes fun of him for backtracking. And oh, sorry about. I, don't, I know you guys hear some uh, brick brack uh, noise in the background. That's a one of our guest studio guest audience members. Um, Gina. Okay, that's fine. Shh, just be quiet. I appreciate that uh, Grover Hall uh, is uh, equally a prick to everybody. Right. He seems like a person that he kind of does seem a little bit politically neutral, just like being um, well, his, sna- his like yeah. snarky, his snarky guy. His, his political position is to assume that everyone is a hypocrite and everybody deserves to be taken down a peg and he's smart and he's going to do it for you and, and he's going to sell papers yep. by um, poking holes in people. He throws up the whole thing about nursemaids as agitators and he says, like, they can't guarantee the safe. Oh, because Patterson once say, like, we can't guarantee the safety of a fool. And that's what these people are. So he throws that back in his face. Um, and Grover also says daddy, how, like. Daddy, daddy, daddy. I want the dog. Daddy. Daddy. I don't know if I agree with that, Gina. I mean, from my perspective, <laughs> Patterson is taking a hard line until he has to cave. <laughs> yeah, Gina. Um, we can cut that out. But. Grover also just makes fun of uh, Patterson saying, like, Alabama is the only state that had a problem with the Freedom Riders. Uh, And I guess, like, Mississippi, would you consider, like, even worse on racial relations? But anyways. That's a a tough bracket, I would say. Mississippi versus Alabama and racial oppression. Yeah. So there's some king. Let's take a little bit of a pause here. Um, Actually, let's take a musical break. 
even though we just had a pause, we'll take another musical, we'll take a musical break, because we're going to get into King and some SNCC tension, or SNCC tension. So there's this fantastic, remarkable scene, which if you could go back in time, I don't know if your brain works like this, Gabe, but this is how mine works. You know, you could go back in time to different scenes. There's a scene in this pharmacist's living room, Richard Harris. This is like two days after this event where there's James Bevel, Diane Nash, James Farmer, Wyatt Walker, King, James Lawson, um, and a couple like a couple other SNCC. Is, is Farmer in this meeting? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And they're all there discussing kind of what to do next in this person's house. And who should do it. And what, yeah, and how to go forward. And I don't want to say it's like the young and the old because they're all kind of young, really. But the students are pushing King a little bit, saying, like, you need to join us. And at one point they say, where's your body? What's also interesting is that James Farmer does not seem to command respect. And... He's like the older of the group, right? He's the head of core. And I'm not sure why, if it's because his lack of participation or his age. What I remember is that he is doing a thing which is proprietary. And it's totally, although he's a core leader, he's he's a key organizer of the Freedom Rides. He is behaving in a way that is unlike the culture of the Freedom Riders. Right. right? He's calling it my thing. Right? Where it's like Nash and Lewis are like really the real leaders. Well, they're the ones that kind of did it. Right. Well, so two things, right? One, they're the ones who did it while Farmer had actually been with his family, right? He wasn't moving furniture, but he wasn't on the scene for sure, right? But also, Farmer is positioning himself and talking about this as if it was an asset, a pro- like a, a property almost that he owns in the same way that people like Wilkins mm, um, okay, okay. and Marshall are very protective of, of the NAACP against SCLC. So he's not coming with like, I'm a comrade with you. Like I'm, we're, we're part of this, but we're not like in arms, so to speak. Well, the, I think um, Branch describes the Freedom Riders as sort of recoiling from the way Farmer yep. is acting because they see this as, as a moral mission, and he's talking about it like it's a, or, mm-hmm. a organizational property, and specifically his. So King was torn about participating in this, and I'm, I have two opinions, I guess, what we'll get into, But because he talks about, he has this traffic violation that if he gets in trouble again, he could be in jail for six months, so he didn't want to risk that. And his advisors, Walker, Wyatt Walker and Bernard Lee, were like, no, you got other duties, you can't do this. Um and, and he has other responsibilities, they're saying. He was sympathetic to what the students were doing, and he kind of wanted to join, but he's making these excuses. And John Lewis and the other SNCC activists are a little bit disappointed. In the documentary by American Experience, the PBS one, 
uh, the Freedom Riders. Branch doesn't say this, but one of the SNCC riders says King was essentially comparing himself to Jesus and saying that he has a higher calling. And it's like, with all due respect, I, we, we loved King, but we were a little disappointed that he didn't want to kind of come and join with us. And so what ends up happening is, um, you know, he's saying, I could get in trouble again. Students make light of it, like, well, hey, I'm on probation, but I'm still going. Um, Walker finally steps up and gets a little slang with him and says, he's not going, and that's it. Kind of just throwing down. And the students resented Walker, but they were divided on King, and some thought it was better for him to carry the message of, like, the Freedom Riders and the civil rights uh, struggle, you know, around the country. Um, and James Bevel, remember, he's the preacher guy in the in the showers who was—he's uh, here, he's not moving furniture, or that got delayed or something. He cautioned his fellow students—I like this part—he cautioned fellow students against making badges of their commitment— are they right? <laughs> Is King right? Who's right here? Well, there, there's another really interesting reflection from John Lewis about how you also, as a nonviolent activist, shouldn't try to pressure someone to go beyond their own witness to engage in acts of nonviolence which are beyond what they themselves can bear. In other words, you shouldn't be sort of daring and pushing each other into... Mm-hmm. In, in, into positions people aren't prepared to take. But Branch also picks up that within that kind of thinking is a kind of reverse condescension, right? Mm-hmm. Which is to say that we're now ahead of you, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King Jr. We, in fact, are um, greater apostles of the movement and the spirit of nonviolence and Christian witness than you, Martin Luther King Jr., are. And it seems like for John Lewis in particular, that line of thinking is also painful to him because as a very, mm-hmm. very young person, he revered Dr. King. Yeah. And let's, let's talk about this um, just a little more because I could talk about it all day. This, this idea of direct action and, and we're going to go a little bit more into it, but I myself find that uh, in the activist circles that I've been in in my life, there's a bit of fetishizing direct action and romanticizing it to be that is the thing that you need to do. And maybe the boring and the, or the tedious work or even the speaking is not as important as the like getting in, putting your body on the line and doing this. This is the where the real work is done. Um, and this is going to be for the rest of the chapter kind of a part, part of you'll see why this can be a problem. And you kind of need both, obviously. Well, right. And and yet even needing both, it can sometimes be very difficult and or even impossible to bridge this kind of a gap between relatively close positions. I mean, like the, Ella Baker kind of does. We'll we'll talk about that. Right. Ella, Ella Baker's remarkable, and I think that she may be able to do that in part because she's often peripheral or just independent of existing organizations or institutions, right? Like, if you think about the tension that Wilkins and um, Thurgood Marshall feel with the rising SCLC, right? Well, it's almost like now the SCLC leaders are feeling that tension with the young SNCC activists, right? At at one point, um, Branch points out that SNCC is barely an organization at all. Yes. I think there's literally one right. person he does say on that. staff nationally. It's mainly just a network of like-minded people. Whereas on the other side, 
the SCLC people, they're all preachers. They have this ton of funding national network Mm -hmm. um, of funding led by people like uh, Levison and Rustin, right? They are trying to build and sustain something. Whereas the, the, and I guess what I'm saying is there's, there's a generational aspect, which is much commented on, but there's also um, an asymmetry mm-hmm. of sort of organizational life. You know, and look, to be, you've, you've seen some of this play out yourself over time, right? Like someone like myself, who's an official of an existing worker organization, a trade union with collective bargaining agreements and some assets and <clears throat> always feels like the underdog, but struggling, but mm-hmm. has, ha- has an institutional presence. Talking to young activists who aren't defending something like that also don't feel weighed down by it. We can really easily get into a situation where we're talking past each other or disagreeing with each other when we we share almost all the same goals. And it it, it feels very familiar to me. Yeah, and just, we're going to say it again, but Ella Baker later on comes up with a really logical compromise within SNCC of saying, okay, you guys want to do that? Let's just split it in half. Some some SNCC people do activism. Some people do voter registration well, stuff. Let's, let's hold off on the debate within SNCC. Though. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But she, I, I want to mention it because I did. Oh, she's very smart. Okay. So the press conference the next day, um, King says, you know, it's, and you can see this in the documentary. It's like Abernathy's sitting there with uh, King. And John Lewis is in the background. The rides are going to continue through the heart of Mississippi, martial law or not, protection or no protection. And then he sets aside his text and says, the freedom riders must develop the quiet courage of dying for a cause, choking back emotions that had torn him in private debates. And then he says, we would not like to see anyone die. We all love life and there are no martyrs here, but we are well aware that we have some we may have some casualties, and I'm sure these students are willing to face death if necessary. So, you know, pretty heavy, heavy words and things happening. So let's pause, or Branch goes all over the place here. He mentioned some stuff about Hoover. Hoover is just, like, inept. Kennedy asked him to get, like, some background, and... I don't even want to talk about this because I'm just going to mention it. Kennedy just basically says, are you inept? Like, what's going on? And Hoover says, well, here's what I know. King's a communist. They all are, you know, he does arrest four people at the Aniston burning or the bus bombing. But he didn't really care about the issue. He wasn't involved. He says, like, I don't want to be on guard duty for these civil rights activists. Um, So there's not much really with Hoover. But back to the federal government. Well, let's just go ahead. Just add a little footnote here because Hoover... Branch points out that Hoover has a kind of institutional mission as well as an ideological mission, right? The institutional mission is to make sure the FBI remains an intelligence agency, a, a, a domestic intelligence agency and not a police organization, right? So he, he's, he wants to hold it aloof from mere policing, right? Mm-hmm. But then also that having a ideological enemy uh, hiding underneath all kinds of problems in society is an excellent place to be if you're in the intelligence business. And add to that, you know, which is not, doesn't really come up in this chapter, but but Hoover himself is a Southern racist by <laughs> by upbringing, <laughs> right? Uh, and and a staunch anti-communist, and so he is uh, excited and enraged to learn that there is not a full investigation of King. That there's there's more research we can do, and he sets the ball rolling, which of course becomes. Um, more and more problematic, let's say, as the 60s go on. (laughs) 
Burke Marshall, head of the Civil Rights Division, kind of says, look, we can't keep guarding these buses. We can't do some and not others. And nationally, people are coming to, you know, students are getting attracted to these freedom rides, so they're getting more recruited into doing it. Um, RFK says, you know, let's just let state officials deal with this. Essentially saying, you know, segregation is going to win here, but let's not have mob violence occur. Essentially... I'm okay with these people getting arrested, but let's not have like the bus bombing and all that violence. And so the way I understand this is right now in this moment in history, this is like probably May 25th or something. They're going to like protect one more bus because they think this is going to be petering out. So they have this one bus that's going to go to Jackson, Mississippi, no terminals, no snack bars, no restrooms. I think like somebody gets sick on the bus and they like, get off and like a, a group of troops is like surrounding them to protect them um and the kennedys are thinking okay this will be it like we're done with this but surprise surprise a second bus is coming <laughs> this is like a seismic shock to them two core students jerome smith doris castle and henry thomas this guy i, I don't remember meeting henry thomas mentioning him this guy is the veteran of the aniston bus burning 10 days earlier i would not Gabe, would you get on? I don't know. Who's, who knows what we would have done back in those days? Incredible courage. Impressive. Lunacy. Impressive. Yeah, impressive. And then um, I, we got to give a shout out to maybe my... I, when I hear this, I just think this, these people are saints. Lucretia Collins. Why is she a saint? Because she is a national student who conducted nonviolent workshops. So she's got some you know skills. On the bus. On the bus, yes. So RFK is like, we can't keep this going. This is like, this is, this is driving me nuts. He, this is almost funny. He feels betrayed by the activists. How dare they have these <laughs> freedom rides? We just did all this protection. Uh, this is Siegenthaler. We had to do this, bring the troops in. And most importantly, there's this big trip with JFK. He's going to be meeting Khrushchev, who is Nikki Khrushchev. <laughs> He is the head of the Soviet Union. Remember, guys, 1961, this is the Cold War. We could face nuclear war. I know people don't have any understanding of what that is listening to this in 2040 or 2022. But um, this this was the two big superpowers. So they were pleading with the activists and King to like, you know, let's not do this anymore. This is going to be harmful. He puts in the press, I might be jumping ahead of myself, that there should be a cooling off period, um, which Patterson really appreciates. This, oh, sorry, this is uh, one of those moments where the, the global context really is important. It re re really intervenes. And it's, the added um, pressure on the Kennedy administration is that they have just um, been forced to accept responsibility for the humiliating failure of the Bay of Pigs oh, invasion. Oh, right, right, right. So Kennedy is going into this summit, his first summit, the first summit of his presidency. Because, um, yeah, he's like six been, months into his, right, not he, even. He's, he's, he's complicit in this uh, terrible, bloody failure. And... I think that he's really aware that the world has low expectations for him as a young man, as a first-term president, against um, Nikita Khrushchev, who's seen as, as tough. And, of course, if he comes out of that conference a failure, 
then it could mean maybe he's a one-term president. It could mean all kinds of escalations in other places, uh, which in fact it does, uh, as we'll find out soon. Um, But so Bobby Kennedy, of course, who is sort of simultaneously a top foreign policy advisor while also handling all of this attorney general work, uh, is just acutely aware that this will be used as propaganda in Europe, mm-hmm. um, both 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 by you know liberal and social democratic journalists talking about it, asking questions about it, and also by communist parties and com- communist intellectuals. The Aniston bombing attack- picture at, is at, all at, over the world. Exactly at- attacking Kennedy as as not being for freedom, in fact, um, tolerating uh, segregation and racism. In- in the documentary, they show that Aniston bomb, uh, burnt bus bombing in Cuba, in the Soviet Union, on the Pravda, whatever the heck it's called. So JFK gives a speech to before then, like, we want to go to the moon, we're going to increase nuke spending, We um, th- this is going to be harmful to the mission if we have all this like race mm-hmm. stuff going on. And this is when Robert Kennedy starts lashing out. Yeah, l- right? he's lashing out. And there's like a send-off for the third bus ride. Um, and this is where I think your favorite line of the book. Although not only lashing out. We'll come to this in a minute. He comes up with a, actually a very impressive oh, inc- inc- set of set of inc- pressures and, and pulls pulls and pushes. Yeah, incredibly. Uh, an offer that you can't refuse almost. But um, so a sh- uh, reporter shouts out to Abernathy when they're at this send-off for the Freedom Riders like, what do you think about um, how the administration is saying we can't be embarrassed before the Soviets um, with all these freedom rides? And Abernathy says, well, doesn't the attorney general know we've been embarrassed all our lives? <laughs> I, I think this is just fantastic. Yeah, Ralph Abernathy, I think, sort of lived his life um, – even as King's best friend, and, and then sort of formally as his successor, you know, in the shadow of Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. you know, as a as a um, orator, as an intellect, as a as a spiritual leader, um, not um, as great as King, sure. But his courage and you know, in these moments of clarity, that's a really important revelation. Like, why don't you come to Walk the South before you fly right. around the world talking right. about freedom, Mister Kennedy? Yeah. Um. And there's this interesting scene that I was kind of touched by where James Farmer, head of court, tells one of the Freedom Riders, uh, this woman, Doris, he's like, hey, my prayers are with you, Doris. And it's like, what? He's not going to go with them? You're not coming with us, Jim? And he starts to make like a bunch of excuses. You know, I got all these papers I got to like fill out and the other stuff. And <laughs> I got my, you know, all these things going on. A lot, a lot of mail to open. Yeah, a lot of mail and blah, blah, blah. And then he just says like, I'm going, get my luggage, you know. So he ends up actually getting on the, the bus. And this is, again, the one that's super secure. There's a caravan of uh, troops. There's actually helicopters. And so they're heading down to Jackson, Mississippi. And again, this is like a moment where I love Jim Farmer and it's a it's a very human moment like he actually does have an organizational responsibility and he feels this profound uh loyalty and protectiveness to these younger people and he just decides in the moment I'm going to take this great risk it's uh it's magnificent so there's a third bus in these freedom let me make sure I'm not missing anything yeah okay Mm. 
So there's a third bus. <laughs> um, but these Freedom Riders are more academic types. There's one being a university chaplain, William Sloan Coffin, um, Charles Jones of SNCC. Um, and this was distressing branch rights to the Kennedys because this wasn't the usual suspects of like lefty uh, people, I guess, but there were, because there were prominent Ivy League professors. So other people outside the normal milieu, I guess, are risking their lives and in getting involved in this is m making it seem more broad. Um, while the third bus is going on, Lawson's group gets to Jackson and immediately goes to jail. They like go to the whites only area and it's like no, no violence, but time for jail um and then this is in the media where kennedy declares a cooling off period is needed did you want to say something okay um so the jail not bail thing takes hold in jackson kennedy talks to king about this and kennedy's saying like what are you guys doing this is not like and king's like it's a matter of conscience and morality they to print to quote him they must use their lives and their bodies to right a wrong our conscience tells us that the law is wrong and we must resist but we have a moral obligation to accept the penalty and rfk speaking like a bro i guess says this isn't going to change how the government does anything um uh, this isn't going to have the slightest effect on me or on the government and him being flippant king says okay well you want a hundred thousand people to come down here and Kennedy sees that as a threat and says, hey, hey, I don't appreciate this tone. What are you talking about? And then King backtracks a little bit saying, you know, I appreciate what the administration has done. But, you know, this is happening. Um, I like that scene. And I mean, you're really seeing the relationship between the tension between King and Kennedy. Uh, but also what I like more is when afterwards Kennedy I'm going to swear, bitches to Wolford after this conversation saying like, this is too much. What is wrong with these people? Uh, I'm paraphrasing here. And he, he says like, don't they have the, the best interest of their country at heart? And do you know that one of them is against the atomic bomb? And then Kenneth, and then King uh, cut to his, his scene with Abernathy saying like, they don't understand the social revolution going on. Therefore, they don't understand what we are doing, which is totally true. I mean, they're really... Is it is the phrase like talking past each other? They're not getting it. Well, it 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 also is. It's interesting why the involvement of, of Ivy League theologians is really troubling to the Kennedys. I mean, so the Kennedys are obviously outsiders in a one particular way. They're Irish Catholics, right? But they're people who, because of their father's immense wealth, wealth went to Harvard. They're surrounded by by Harvard and Yale. Uh, foreign policy intellectuals and lawyers and advisors, and they're engaged in kind of statecraft mm -hmm. in, in their view, and there are always these people around them telling them that's what they're doing. They're sort of measuring themselves against people like Roosevelt and Churchill. And they, they, I think they probably are shocked and somehow betrayed that they feel that these activists don't understand or don't care um, what they're trying to accomplish. And uh, they're right. Those activists are really not <laughs> right. morally aligned with them at all uh, on, on, on that front. Um, and I, I really like the idea of this sense of, wait a second, there are people like us, our kind of people, people from our institutions who are suddenly going down to take part in this. What is going wrong here? And this report about Kennedy questioning the Freedom Riders' patriotism 
actually depresses some of the Freedom Riders. Like, they they are kind of thinking like, well, wait a second. I don't want to weaken world peace with the USSR or threaten that. Um, and William Sloan's group is, before they embark on their journey to uh, Jackson, they have a discussion. Some of them are, are like weeping. They have a secret ballot, uh, election, not election, but a secret ballot of should we go or stay? And um, there's a lot of emotional discussion about it. And the vote is seven to nothing. We're going. So they're hugging and rejoicing. They're heading down. So Attorney General Kennedy says, you know, the Justice Department cannot side with one group over the other. Um, you know, these are the safest rides in America. And these are good propaganda for our enemies. And I like how. So that's how it was. But they're going to stop doing this. And then Branch writes. I like this part where he says. So 18 days prior to this, <laughs> right. there's a speech at the right. University of Georgia where Kennedy, you know, says these grand words about how the department would move swiftly to enforce federal court decisions guaranteeing the constitutional rights of uh, Negroes. Gone. Done. We're done with that. And then, you know, this May 26th. My God, we've been talking and this has only been like 10 days. May 26th, the idea of continuing the Freedom Rides is, is created. There's a Freedom Ride Coordinating Committee uh, that Corps has. Um, they're getting more recruitments. And then Branch writes, it disappears from the news. <laughs> um, but it doesn't. Did you want to say something? Okay. Well, I, just the, the, this idea that suddenly the federal government goes from asserting a position to uh, proclaiming neutrality is, is not so unfamiliar, right? Like the, no. the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act, is passed uh, to favorably support the idea of people forming unions. And of course... Uh, decades and decades go on, and the whole purpose of the labor board is to appear to be neutral between between workers and, and management. Yeah. So President Kennedy delivers an announcement on May 25th saying, I'm here to, to promote the freedom doctrine. And this freedom doctrine is about civil rights and racial equality. <laughs> That's a bad joke. Has nothing to do with that. He says the great battleground for the defense and expansion of freedom today is the whole southern half of the globe, Asia, Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East. Basic end to injustice and tyranny and exploitation. He never mentions uh, racial uh, injustice at home. And the, the press then turns against the Freedom Riders, too. They start challenging. They say the New York Times has some piece saying, like, you know, this is challenging long-held customs. And, and <laughs> of course. But, but what's funny Ain't about it is interesting is, like, there was some, it seemed like there was some pro-Freedom Ride. Like they were on the, they had their sympathy when the violence was kind of on the paper. And then this nonviolence provokes violence and it's a logical contradiction. Um, and then there was a thing that's in the paper. Dr. King refuses to end bus test. And a Gallup poll shows that 63% of Americans disapprove of the freedom rides. Right. This is, this is a kind of intellectual game that a certain kind of, self-proclaimed moderate or independent or liberal can play about, well, the person standing up to engage in, in nonviolent resistance is somehow actually creating the context of violence. So King or uh, Branch, I feel like he put this in out of place, but it's a big victory and it's just like buried in the chapter. And you know what I'm talking about here, the ICC? Well, right. So this, it, it, it got to fit in here because it's part of the the sort of it's one of the legs of the stool of like a three-legged stool of, of a of a Bobby Kennedy move which 
is, is attempting to totally change the agenda. Yeah, but he he like um, he gives a victory before I guess in our time sequence because it doesn't happen till September, which we don't get to. But anyways, so Bobby Kennedy starts to apply. He he rethinks this a little bit, and he's like, you know, let's apply some pressure to the Interstate Commerce Commission and try to remove these segregation laws, which normally would take forever. But as the Attorney General, he pushes it forward. Um, so like a bureaucratic uh, miracle. Yeah, it, that, it that's the way Branch writes it, and he, he like pushes this really forward. And then there's a, there's a victory that occurs in September, which is insanely fast, and the segregation laws are removed. So, so he, I, I guess here's my point, right? And just 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 to state it clearly, as as, as I read this anyway, right? So Kennedy wants to take this uh, freedom ride dynamic. Out of the news Off and, the and out, out of the out of the domestic and international politics. So what does he do? One, he's going to refuse to um, enforce the laws. He, he's he's not going to set up more confrontations like he's seen. Yep. He's going to be very critical of the freedom riders, try to marginalize them. That's part one. And then part two, he's going to do this bureaucratic move. Voter education project. Well, hold on. Oh, sorry. Okay. The, the bureaucratic move to, to actually get the um, oh, right. Interstate yeah. Commerce Commission to do away with this segregation, which he which he pulls off. And then the third leg of the stool, exactly as you say, is let's make a shift towards voter registration, both um, collaborating directly as the Justice Department with these um, black freedom organizations. Yep. But I think I'm sure also giving a word to the foundations who can start to move money to make it possible for, for these organizations to have their own self-interest in moving in that direction, right? Right. Um, I mean, knowing what we know, because we have lived the history, and, and he <laughs> right. hasn't, yeah. uh, he can't quite anticipate yeah. the uh, the confrontations that are going to come around voting rights. Right. But in the moment, it's sort of strategically and bureaucratically and politically uh, uh, impressive. And so he, regarding the voter voting rights, he starts to do some things with assisting nonprofit tax exempt status of this voter education project, which ends up being a collaboration between the Kennedy administration and like core SCLC and SNCC. Um, he's just less enthusiastic for these, the freedom rides, like as Gabe said. Well, they're, he, yeah, he they're maximally some, confrontational. Ma- it's out of the news, but also some of the SNCC folks are getting um, less enthusiasm for the mm. uh, freedom rides. And I, let's take some time to talk about this. Actually, let's take a quick break. Maybe even a musical break. Hold on. Okay, so let's talk about Timothy Jenkins. I like what this guy has to say, and I'm very sympathetic. So he's, in essence, a SNCC member. He was critical of the pain and suffering school. He did not share their religious zeal, and he thought direct action was a dead end. Kind of critical, right? Hypercritical, maybe? Um, What he said is whenever whenever the zeal died out, he predicted the movement would be left with no political protection. And to Jenkins, all such protections were grounded in the vote. So he tried to organize on the inside of SNCC and tried to win over 
what he what he refers to as the three Charlies. Charles Sherrod, the country mystic, deeply religious with a stubborn streak. Uh, Jones, the sophisticated dandy and son of a prominent Southern preacher, preacher with fancy clothes and a um, deep baritone voice. A junior version of King. I consider that you, Gabe. You're the um, fancy clothes dandy. Yeah, and then, um, that's, that's then true. there's McDew. The no- this is me. The northern athlete, daring and cool, with a uh, subtle appreciation of both labor history and Jewish prophets. I guess that's not really me. So, um, let's just talk real quick about, not real quick, maybe for as long as we want. Uh, I'm very sympathetic to this because how we, as we mentioned before, how often can you just keep having all this direct action without? Um, you know, building for other kind of political change, you know. Well, and contemporary listeners will uh, r- maybe be familiar with debates about something like the um, uh, Occupy movement or the... I uh, thought about this, or, actually. Or Black Lives Matter movement. We, we could talk about Occupy. I'll put that on the table because it's now past us. Um, yeah, the Occupy movement was a lot of that, just direct action, holding a space, but then it didn't seem to materialize into any sort of larger political organization or tangible victories or I mean, or or go back a few years to the anti-globalization mobilizations like there's a period of time when people are drawn into intense um, action phase but while that's happening some people are always going to be asking well what happens next and is the plan just to continue escalating actions or do we have to have another phase of activity and therein will always be a debate. And I, the older I get, the less action I'm into. <laughs> not, I mean, not really because I, I participate and show up to everything Whippersnappers, I Paul. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I show kids. up, the I kids show, these days. I'll show up and participate in anything that, that, that occurs. But I just remember an Occupy meeting I went to where there was, I want to say like several hundred people in this big church. And I just thought of what a missed opportunity to engage people and get people more involved. And, you know, some people stuck around and it, uh, great point on the early globalization movement action. This it's a 28, it's a 15, it's, you know, all these other things. And so anyways, RFK has a meeting with these SNCC activists and freedom riders um, well, it's actually, it's the three Charlies, Wyatt Walker, Diane Nash, who, I don't know if Jenkins is this, is it this or not, but they kind of think Diane Nash is too zealous for direct action, that she's, you know, that's all she wants to do. I'm going to, I have a special place in my heart for her, so no, I'm not going to let them criticize her, but, uh, maybe they're right. So they want, they go to RFK saying, listen, we want more help with the freedom rides. And as we know, RFK is annoyed with this, and this is where he's super brilliant, and my God, it would be so hard to refute this. He says, instead of, like, discussing that, he gives a counterpoint and says, hey, why don't I help you register people to vote behind the scene, out of the news? I mean, he doesn't exactly say it that way, but he says, um, we can—this line is so perfect. Hold on. 
he says that Charles Sherrod gets upset and kind of gets close to Kennedy as if he's going to hurt him or something. And Wyatt Walker pulls him back by his pants pocket. And uh, I mean, Sherrod's like, it's not your responsibility before God or under the law to tell us how to honor our constitutional rights. It's your job to protect us when we do. He sounds like a younger version of me is like a hothead. Um, And then Kennedy says this. Uh, we could keep filling up the jails with Freedom Riders if you want to do that, or we could fill the jails up with white Southern officials who try to obstruct federal protecting voting rights. How about that? What do you think of that, Gabe? Well, what it, would you do? It, it's a uh, it's a very fine rhetorical turn. Um, you know, one might uh, one might ask, can you really imagine the uh, Kennedy administration throwing. Uh, uh, county or state officials of Alabama or Mississippi in federal prison. I mean, that's the first thing I thought. But uh, it, it's a great line. Yeah. Yeah, that's the first thing I thought. I was just like, okay, yeah, like that's going to happen. But he still is saying he wants to put resources into doing something that they probably all agree is a valid, positive thing to do of registering people to vote and trying to, you know, end voting discrimination. So... The day before this is going on, we got to go to prison life and the non the non glamorous prison life in uh, Parchman Penitentiary. So oh, go ahead. Well, again, it's like it's it's really useful for me to read this history, which is I think thoughtfully covering both the the sort of the established political side and the activist movement side side by side mm-hmm. as the, as they progress chronologically because when i think of the struggle for voting rights my mind sort of leaps forward to what happens later when there's incredible uh violent confrontations and uh the whole society is um and the the next president is is locked into what's happening around this it's an intense confrontation but at this point the federal government thinks this is a a welcome break again Mm -hmm. i I said this a few minutes ago but it's kind of marvelous to take the time to do history like this to realize before all that unfolds this is something that the uh established you know uh center of power thinks is is the right direction for the movement and less risky so just to give our listeners uh so they don't know the total history and this will probably be covered in episode zero two five what are you referring to in terms of voting rights um well look look Look, they're gonna they're gonna be intense confrontations and uh attacks on marches demanding uh the vote they're going to be uh, volunteers who are trying to register people to vote who get uh, murdered by the Klan and mm-hmm. with the collusion of Southern police departments, the federal government, the FBI are going to get drawn into it. Uh, this is a kind of aspect of the struggle that um, exactly what Bobby Kennedy at this point as attorney general is trying to head off. Mm-hmm. I Actually, you know, in retrospect, it seems like he's underestimating the kind the of challenges. confrontation that he's going to run into. Like, it's one thing for John Doerr to go around filing individual lawsuits. It's quite another for a social movement to take on registration in the South. I, I think Kennedy is just not thinking about and, it. And when I read this, I am in Kennedy's brain thinking like, yeah, just do this behind the scenes. No one's going to know. You just, like, register these people, throw a couple and, and, Klansmen and, behind and, jail that are doing this in little podunk towns in the South. And And... Probably his idea of voter registration, even though he's listening to people like 
John Doerr, he's employing them, he's, he's meeting with them. He, he can't quite picture how this is going to be a cataclysmic struggle. You know, registering someone to vote in Massachusetts is not a big deal. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it may just be that he doesn't see at all what's coming. I, he, I guess he can't, really. He, it makes sense to him that it seems like it would be a more normal, normative, mm-hmm. kind of legalistic dispute. So while they're meeting with uh, Kennedy, the other activists are going, they're all in jail. There's, I think at one point, there's like 300 plus people that are uh, down in this Jackson jail, and then they end up going to Parchman Penitentiary. And there's a scene where there's like two white prisoners are complaining about conditions. And this one Terry Sullivan gives a speech. It's sad and depressing, but it's kind of funny because Lawson's like, listen, Lawson, black guy, he says to Terry Sullivan, don't give this speech. That's not a good idea. Don't, don't express your, your opinions to these guards. And so he gives this speech, Terry Sullivan saying how bad the conditions are and that this is terrible. So what do the guards do? They dump these two white guys out of a truck, drag, drag them through grass, across the concrete, take off their clothes, and uh, prod them with a cattle prod till they're screaming, um, you know, in suffering and pain. I mean, it, it, it's we, we move past it fairly quickly, but Parchman Prison in Mississippi, along with maybe the Angola Prison in, in Louisiana, I think are among the most infamous prisons in the United States. And I looked it up, it still exists. Oh, yeah, these are these are <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. These, these are institutions of state oppression. Yeah. and control with uh with storied histories that go back yeah. to slavery. The documentary talks about how the the activists had like a unified uh, they would sing, they would take the mattress away, and they would sing like, oh, you're going to take our mattress away, and they would take their toothbrush away, they would take their clothes away, they were paraded naked through the showers. Um, some of them did some like hunger strike Gandhi style things. The book, Branch talks about some, uh, I think, discussion and some conflict among the prisoners. Uh, you know, they're doused with fire hoses, and then it's really hot in there at times. Uh there's arguing going on, but eventually the uh, original Freedom Riders end up bailing them out. But it's it's they're there for maybe two months, July 7th. They get over. Um, and the survival, it was not easy. It wasn't they, they get through it. They're like totally exhausted. They're not like they're not saying, no, we must stay here. Don't bail us out. They're saying, OK, that was rough. Let's get, get out of here. And then when they all go back to their respective cities, they're. A lot of people, local press sees them as heroes or, you know, wants to interview them. And Branch kind of writes that this, at this point, students are starting to see this as a vocation in and of itself, that like being this activist, John Lewis withdraws from his India program. And I thought you'd appreciate that. I put a little star next to that in my text. <laughs> You're root, 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 rooting for the, the Quakers to lose that one. Yeah, get out of India. I, I mean, I love India, but... Um, so Farmer's a leader. He goes on, like, when he gets to the airport, actually, he's on TV there. This occurs to other uh, students, as I mentioned. And so then we have this discussion, as we keep talking about, about voter registration versus direct action. And um, there's this, you know, the drudgery of registration work. And the SNCC students are torn about it. Um, you know, some of them 
don't want to see the action be suspended. They want to keep escalating. They want to keep going. Um, Bob Moses shows up, and as Gabe mentioned, he's been doing this voter registration quietly, and he doesn't want to take sides in the debate versus you know voter registration or more freedom rides, and he doesn't even feel like he has a right to speak of the of the matter. Um, Shinkin says that he's like too meekly and intellectual to like engage in this. Uh, he was in. He skips the meeting. Yeah, he skips the meeting. He doesn't even go to it. And he, his like mentor is Amzie Moore in Cleveland, Mississippi. And Moore is like, Moses, uh, can we not talk about voter registration stuff going on? We got all this stuff going on with the Freedom Rides. And he's kind of annoying um, Moore. Well, well, it's, it's, this is actually really chilling. And I think that the way that Branch writes it is that Bob Moses is picking up that Amzie Moses is scared. And Amzi Moses is like a tough, long-time, uh, brave, grassroots activist. And when he's saying, maybe we don't do this now because the political mood, presumably among the whites, is is too much on edge because of the freedom rights to try to launch this here. Why don't you go to the other side of the state and right. try this? So he... that, 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 that's, a, that's, a, that's a red flag. Yeah. So he says, you know, let's go, fine, go to Macomb, Mississippi. It's a little further out. So more goes out there. Or Bob Moses goes out there. So there's this debate at um, Highlander, which has been going, the debate has been going on for a while, but they have this three days, they're in deadlock, uh, and about, you know, either do more registration, do voter registration or more direct action. A tie is broken by Charles McDew, and he sides for, like, voter registration, but it's still, like, unsettled. Like, it, people don't feel good about this. Ella Baker— a- I, I have, by the way, not so long ago, been in a local, shall we say, left-wing political meeting where the chair cast a deciding vote for one side over the other— um, it's not good for the internal no. dynamic when, when, the, that close? when the person who's chairing the meeting weighs in on one side because then the side that loses is going to be very dissatisfied. Yeah. So Ella Baker, the supreme organizer that she is, suggests to SNCC that why don't you have two wings? Diane Nash can lead up the direct action and uh, Charles Jones can lead up the voter registration. And actually most people, this satisfies the group for the most part. There are a few disgruntled folks, but those are kind of like the diehard direct action people but um this is like i think brilliant like this yeah. is what you need to she do saves, you need to have, she saves saves the movement there. saves the organization and for me personally i just feel like yeah i'm more comfortable in the house call going door to door than putting my body on the line so the direct action plan how does it go well they want they have this thing of like move to mississippi jackson mississippi they try to do some uh integration actions there it's like a college town they're thinking oh my god this is gonna be great it's college town there's middle class black people there but then the police arrest a a SNCC leader right away and like a harsh penalty of three years of contributing to the delinquency of a minor so it's not it doesn't go very well off the bat and then the registration group um starts speaking with door who says you know go to selma alabama um and terrell county georgia and, you know, you start doing work there, but they have poor context there and it doesn't go well. And they're basically talking to um, 
all fours or antis if you in, in the union union lingo people that are just not receptive they don't have they don't have a lot of uh, fruitful conversations so there's a lot of activity going on though still um, and anything you want to add to that Gabe well it's kind of let's pause, finishing up the chapter here. well let's pause for a moment to marvel at the uh, creativity and evil of the uh, the, the lawyers. Uh, for segregation who figure out that you can charge someone with contributing to the delinquency right. of a minor for getting someone under the age of 18 to protest against uh, racial injustice. Yeah, and so the the chapter kind of finishes Branch mentioning there are these like divergent strains within the movement, but there still is a lot of activity going on and King um, is uh, there's this weird like little scene where, you know, Governor Rockefeller loves Martin Luther King Jr., um, that totally makes sense, though. I, I, yeah, I mean, I guess it does if you know who Rockefeller is. But the amount of love is—I mean, a lot of people hate Martin Luther King Jr. in this country. In this country at the time, and he loves him so much, he takes him on a plane ride. He takes him. He takes him to a freedom uh, freedom ride rally. He makes a movie about him in the freedom rides. He gives uh, gives that movie to his original church, Ebenezer. And hey, just in case you don't have a film projector, he buys him a film projector. Um, Rockefeller is a Republican, and why does it make sense to you? Well, so a couple thoughts. Um, remember that neither political party is polarized the way and, and sorted as well as, as they are today. So just like the, the Democratic Party has these intransigent Southern conservative racists, the Republican Party has plenty of liberals, right? And Nelson Rockefeller is the leader of the liberal camp. He is the governor of the state of New York, which actually has a pretty big black population. He has been, uh, so he, he, and he sees this as his basis. He's thinking of running for president mm -hmm. and he wants to take the black vote back from the Democratic Party, right? Consider all, that, that the hold of the Democrats on um, sort of the allegiance of black voters is not as established. And he thinks he's got an excellent play to make. And so by emphasizing his links to, and support for Dr. King and, and the freedom movement, it'll sort of redound to his his benefit. You know, the, the, the other reason I've been, I've been thinking about this recently is like reading and rereading some of the history of the healthcare worker movement, 1199 mm -hmm. in New York, right? It's Nelson Rockefeller who signs the state law, which makes it uh, legal or creates a legal process in, in New York for healthcare workers to form the union. And of course, that comes out of the movement of mainly black and, and uh, Latino workers organizing and taking action with Local 1199 in New York, a union which in turn is making its case, uh, echoing the black Southern freedom movement, saying we're bringing this to the North. And Rockefeller is actually really sympathetic. He thinks it's going to serve his interest and put him in a position to actually be to the left of the Kennedy administration and the Democratic Party, which of course is divided, and help him win the presidency right. in 1964. And as I mentioned, a lot of people don't like King, like the Southern Baptists, and they had to apologize for him actually speaking about religion at one of their Louisville campuses. Uh, the chapter... Oh, that's the other thing. Rockefeller yeah. himself is Baptist. Right. 
Right. right. So he's a liberal Baptist, which again is kind of hard and to is it him, up right now. And, and we we talked about this in like episode one or two. But yeah. is it him or his father I that built? Yeah, I think it's one of it's, it's, it's one of his one of his forebearers. Who, uh, exactly. The, um, the exactly. Riverside, Riverside Church, Church. In, exactly. in uh, New York, which uh, King's going to give some speeches at. Then it and the chapter ends with um, a reference to King vacationing at Martha's Vineyard with Stanley Levinson, thinking about J. H. Jackson, which I didn't see. I didn't think we were going to come up to that name again. Um, I think remember... Levison set it up for him. I don't think he's like hanging out with him. I mean, maybe he does, but I think this is like one of the things that Levison does. No, I'm sorry. You're right. He's it's Levison's place that he's vacationing at. But for some reason, King's thinking about J.H. Jackson, who's the uh, he's the NBC, right? He's the NBC president, if I remember correctly. So I don't know if we're going to hear more about that. And then the Berlin Wall drama in Europe. Um, it's kind of like eclipsing all news stories about civil rights. It's, you know, um, stories about possible nuclear conflict and war with the Soviets and stuff. Uh, so that's the end of the chapter. I just wanted to throw this out there because this idea of the government kind of assisting, even as conflicted as it is, um, made me think how important <laughs> voting in politics is. Such a dumb thing to say. But I wonder if Nixon was president, just for a second, if we could think about this, would he have done some of the same things that uh, Kennedy is doing? And, you know, it's just impossible to say because if both of these people are politically neutral, they would certainly do certain things to garner votes. And so whether they're sympathetic or not. I mean, as we remember, Nixon actually comes across as more sympathetic to civil rights earlier on. Eventually, he becomes a demon and a monster in his life. <laughs> um, uh, and, well, the yeah. other thing about Nixon that, that, that Branch pointed out early on is he's also, while he's sympathetic to civil rights, he's also starting to experiment with White grievances? With white grievances. Yeah. And this is why I, I still th- suspect that a 1961 uh, inaugurated Richard Nixon even he hasn't been he hasn't been shaped by disappointment and defeat uh, and alienation during the 60s he's still going to be headed in a direction which I think is the wrong direction well but it would be interesting to see how he would deal with Patterson given that he's a Democrat and like would he want to bring in you know would he want to bring in more federal troops and say that's the Democrats that are causing all this you know um, it's almost silly to talk about, but uh... well, it, it it yeah, it's it's really hard to put together because Nixon's strategy of 1968 and 1972 depends on the idea that the Democrats are to his left on civil rights, so he's going to go behind them and pick up the alienated Southern whites. But if he was in charge in 1961, this would all be on his desk or his Attorney General's desk. It's hard to say. I guess I bring it up because to talk to my far left extreme friends, uh, you know, it's very clear to see how important, you know, politics matters in terms of getting protection from federal troops. Um, you know, if you don't have a relationship with them, some of these people would have been killed. Uh, you know, there's no question that um, the. The activists are, you know, w- willingly engaging with, you know, the leaders of the of the administration and trying to, you know, improve things. So, well, and and of course, that's the that's the prehistory, the prehistory that you're kind of referring to, or at least um, 
that I think of when you talk like that, Paul, is what happens after Reconstruction. That when the U.S. Army is pulled out of the South as an occupying power after the period of Reconstruction, then white supremacy with state power and with terrorism uh, claws back what what has been lost to mm-hmm. the black freedom. And this is this tense moment where the federal government does not want to be seen as the occupying federal right. army and yet also knows that there has to be progress um, and they can't uh, they can't be defied. And so it's this I think it, it's the sort of thing that certainly someone like Patterson would have had in his head and I think that the Kennedys would have been aware of as well. Just from some of my indoctrinated uh, left-wing history, your Kennedys are kind of not great on civil rights or, you know, if, oh, if JFK wasn't killed, how would he have performed? But RFK actually seems pretty sympathetic. And while he is a politician, um, is he just doing it to get it off the, get it out of the way and, and get it off the table? Maybe, you know, maybe he's just trying to get that but he does seem as we mentioned he does seem right. uh some somewhat sympathetic right. to this I mean, without turning this into the a, a sort of swerving the story into the kennedys i i think that robert kennedy goes on a journey from being the campaign manager to his brother in 1960 to being the person running for president in 1968 his his worldview changes and i think these events move him when you're like assistant gets his head, be- head beaten in <laughs> i mean i'm sure that has to have an impact on it so anyways we will discuss chapter 13 next and i hope you like this chapter um and check out the eyes on the prize and that story of uh this is this has basically been like part two of the freedom rides i think we're going to be done with that but we'll find out in the next chapter thanks for listening thanks for listening